Amen. Grab a seat. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors and elders here at Aletheia Church. I just want to give a, a brief plug for pre-service prayer. Uh, if you aren't aware, uh, there's a group of us that gather at, from 9 a.m. to 9.30 every Sunday morning, and we pray. And if you're saying, well, where do you pray at? Well, there's this door right here off the edge of the stage to which you can go, and there's a large room back here. Or when you're walking down this uh, walkway out here where the awning is, if you'll hang a right, we just get in there, and we usually sing like one worship song uh, to some track that's playing, and we pray. And so if you want to be prayed for, we would love to pray for you, but we just sit in there and we pray, and you can even come. You don't even have to pray, right? You can just sit and be a warm body in the room, okay? But if you ever want to come, we gather from 9 to 9.30, uh, praying each and every Sunday morning. All right, uh, I'm going to begin this morning uh, by showing you a photo up on the screen, and I'm going to give you about 10, second, 10 seconds to decipher uh, whatever it is you see. So go ahead and look up there, and I'll, I'll give you 10 seconds. All right, how many of you see a duck? How many of you see a rabbit? How many of you saw both? All right. So some of you only saw one thing. Some of you only saw the duck. Some of you only saw the rabbit. And some of you saw one of the first, but then you saw the other one. But now that you have know there's a duck and a rabbit in this illusion, you can't unsee what you previously did not see because now your eyes go back and forth and you can focus on one or the other. But the general illustration is that often we, we see things in life one way or a certain way, and then at some point we actually see something in a new way, and once we've seen it, we can't unsee it. And, and we use this language today, the phrase that we use in common parlance is that of the paradigm shift. And as I was researching this phrase over the last couple of weeks, I came to learn that this phrase was originally coined in 1962 by a man named Thomas Kuhn, a very famous American philosopher and scientist. And here is how he came up with this term, paradigm shift. He says that science goes about doing what normal science does. It just goes along studying things. And then along this path, scientists come across anomalies that disrupt and unseat the previously held ideas that have become the bedrock of that particular scientific discipline. Eventually, enough of these anomalies occur that extraordinary research begins to take place. These findings unseat the previously held ideas. Eventually, a new paradigm is formed, which gains its own new followers. This stage entails both resistance to the new paradigm and adoption by its new followers. According to Max Planck, a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die. And a new generation grows up that is familiar with the new paradigm. Because scientists are committed to the dominant paradigm, paradigms are difficult to change. So here's what I want you to hold on to in this early moment of the message. It takes something really powerful to unseat a previously held belief or way of doing things that you are previously committed to. 
what was strictly a term and concept of science in the 20th century, this term paradigm shift, became all the rage between about 2000 and 2020 if you ever went to any leadership conference, where it was a leadership conference in the church or a leadership conference in business, if you read a business book, this word paradigm shift was everywhere. Because when I went and I planted a church uh, just north of Seattle, Washington, and was there for 12 years, every leadership conference I went to, every leadership book I read for at least a decade, this was the term everyone was using. They said, look, If you want to bring about change, if you want to do something new, if you want to do something great, you've got to take this old way of doing things. You've got to forget that old way of doing things. You've got to look at this new way of doing things. And once you can see things through the lens that we see, you will never want to go back to the old way. And you've got to begin doing things. And what you need more than anything else in your church or in your business, if you want change to happen in a good and a positive way, is that you need a paradigm shift to take place. You need to look at something, an assumption, an idea, and the way you had always done things. And you need to apply this new paradigm. And if you will, once you have seen this new and revolutionary way, you will never be able to go back to the way things were done before. So why all this talk about paradigm shifts? Though the phrase was only introduced into the English lexicon about 60 years ago, God has been about introducing paradigm shifts for a really long time. And today, we're going to travel back and look at a passage where Jesus introduces a revolutionary paradigm shift into the life of His disciples. And my prayer for the last few weeks as I've been looking at this passage is that for us as a church, is that God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, would bring about a paradigm shift in us. He would not just bring about one in us, but one that was just as powerful to the young men that He's going to speak to today. One that's just as powerful as the encounter of the woman at the well, so that we would not be the same that when we leave here today. So let's pray according to that. Father God, We thank you for today and this opportunity to gather. God, I don't know how and in what state of mind everyone comes in here today, but Father, I pray that from this moment forward that your people would be expectant. Your people would be expectant upon you to do something in them. and Expectant upon the power of your Holy Spirit to work something new and fresh in them so that they could leave here changed, knowing that they came and they met the the living and the risen King Jesus as we gathered this morning here at Alathia Church. Father, I pray that you would take what is said today and what is experienced today and that you would take it and you would use it for the glory of your name throughout the generations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, all right, so if you remember the story from from last week, Pastor Kevin did what is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, the woman at the well, all right? Jesus encounters this woman. They have this conversation about water. Now, before we jump into that, I just want to point out one thing that that Kevin didn't point out last week that that I think is very important to today's message, is that it is almost assuredly guaranteed that when Jesus sent the boys down into town to get food, they passed 
the woman as she was coming up to the well. Because there was one path from where they were, from that well, down into town to get food. So it's almost a guarantee they passed. Now, so if we're going to live on that assumption for the moment, let's just imagine what that encounter was like as those young men passed that woman. So if you remember, Kevin told us that this woman was coming to the well in the heat of the day. And the only reason that one would go to the well in the heat of the day was because they were ostracized somewhat from society. This woman had been married five times, and the woman she was currently living with was not her husband. A great source of scorn and shame in the society of that day. So you can only imagine as they are passing one another on the road, these young men who we know aren't fully refined by the power of the Holy Spirit might have had a thing or two to say to one another about this woman as they are going down the road. There probably was some snickering. There was probably even a lewd comment along the way knowing how young men would react to this woman coming along the way. So it is no surprise that they are now really shocked when they come back having gotten the food they were supposed to get. And here is Jesus treating this woman in a very different way than they most likely treated her. I'm sure none of them uh, offered to help her carry uh, those big, heavy jars as we see in the story. They got on the other side of the road and they avoided her. And they come on to this scene where Jesus is actively engaged in the most congenial, friendly way with this lady, having a conversation, breaking all the societal and conventional norms of that day. And so we see Jesus had this conversation with her about water that turned into living water, and she gets so excited and astounded by her new paradigm shift because previously in the early part of that conversation, she could not see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. But once the veil was removed from her eyes and she acknowledges and she sees Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior of the world, it radically changes everything about her. She runs into town saying, you have got to come meet this guy who has told me everything I've ever done. And I don't know if we appreciate the irony of that statement, but I mean, like this was a woman who was considered morally lewd in her day and to have been told everything that she was done. I mean, these people would have been shocked as she's going back into the town of Samaria, but yet her story is so overwhelmingly convincing that she brings the entire town with her up to meet this Jesus. But before we get to that point, Jesus has this incredible moment with his disciples where he brings or he introduces to them this new paradigm shift of how they're going to think about food. Look at what he says. He says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. 
others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And so, I mean, you know, these guys, they, they, they've gone down into town, they've come back with food, and they're doing exactly what they should do as disciples of Jesus. They are, they are looking after their rabbi, they are looking after their teacher, and it's like, hey, you sent us to get food, we are now going to give you some food. You need to eat. And then Jesus, in the most Jesus way possible, says, boys, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And we've already seen, and we see through the Gospels, these aren't the brightest individuals God ever placed on planet Earth. And they're like, hey, what is going on? Did somebody bring him food? And Jesus says, look, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It, and, and you've got to understand, in, in, the, in the day and the time, I mean, th this is really a revolutionary statement in their minds. Because you've got to think about how they viewed food. You've got to think about how they experienced food, which is a, which is a pretty difficult stretch for us. Now, I, I'm sure some of you, in the way you grew up, maybe you, did, you, you didn't have much food to eat and you've dealt with food insecurity in your life. But it's just assuredly so that how they engaged with food and interacted with food is on a totally different level than, than we do, right? I mean, they had to go and put plants in the ground. They were incredibly uh, um, uh, dependent upon the 20 days of rain a year that would came, come to water the crops, to grow the crops so they could act, actually live, right? And so, like, you imagine if you're going on a journey from one town to another with your family, the beasts of burden are carrying the food, you're going along the way, you meet a robber, they take all your stuff from you. I mean, like, you literally have nothing. You have no money, you have no food. You can't just go to the convenience store, you can't just pull out the debit card, you can't go to the bank and get money out. I mean, when you had food, it was an incredibly sacred item. It wasn't the plethora of options that we have today to where we can just go and access food in any way, shape, or form and just go and choose whatever we want to eat. And so for them, food really was life. Everything was hand to mouth. There was no storing up food for a long time in many cases. It was something that was every few hours you were like, am I going to eat to live? How is this going to... It, you, they weren't planning like, oh, I'm going to have bacon and eggs and a waffle and syrup and coffee for breakfast. I'm going to have a hamburger with french fries for lunch, and I'm going to top it off with the steak. Or no, you know, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to go Italian. No, Italian doesn't do it. How about Mexican? Yes, Mexican will hit the spot tonight. You know, they did not have these kind of options. And so when, when Jesus says, hey, um, I've got food that you know nothing about, he is really like turning over the apple cart. He is really giving them something new to think about, something that had never been introduced into their mind, that what sustains him, what gives him life, what really pushes him forward in everything that he does, and, and what helps him get through the day is not consuming food, but consuming the will of the Father and doing the work that he has called him to do. And so in the same way that Jesus taught that the Samaritan woman, the way He taught her that there's not just water but living water, today He's going to teach the disciples there's not just physical food, but there's heavenly food that will even sustain you more throughout this life. 
My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this to you, and, and, and I, I've really questioned whether this is an overstatement or not, and I really don't think it is. I don't know if there is a more important verse for us today as the church when it comes to our own joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction. You know, Pastor Kevin has said regularly up here recently that no one robs you of greater joy than yourself. Absolutely true. Absolutely 100% true. So, what I want you to do is, like, I know you're listening to me, but I just want you to kind of put a stop on that for a second. I want you to kind of turn internal and be introspective for a second because it's going to be important for how we push through the next part of this message. I want you just to, to look at the people that you interact with on a daily basis. I mean, like, like visualize them in your mind, like at work. Visualize the, the people in, in your office. If it's at school, visualize some people that you know in school. Your neighborhood, visualize the people that you interact with. Visualize yourself sitting with, with that device in front of you. How much joy do you really see radiating in people? When you, when you look at the interactions with, with people, when you look at how people talk to one another in the office, is it arguing? Is it complaining? Is it just negative all the time? How much fear do, do you see people have in their conversations with one another and how they deal with the situations in, in life. How do you feel after an, ex, after an extended hour of scrolling through your social media feed? Do you feel better after seeing all the vacations that everybody else is on? Do you, do you feel better about the new car that somebody else got when you're driving the old beater? Do you feel better and really celebrate that raise that someone you know got? I'm not saying any of this is necessarily wrong. What I'm saying is we are looking, I think, to, to the wrong things to sustain us, to truly make us fulfilled, to, to truly give us joy in this life. And, and the primary place I want to I push at this for a moment is at, is at work, right? Because Jesus uses this, hey, my, my, my work is, you know, my, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And God has given us all work to do. And I think one of the greatest struggles that, that, that we have in modern society is finding meaning and purpose and fulfillment in our work. Now, let me say, if you find work that gives you incredible meaning and purpose, that's awesome. That's just like a bonus. That's a cherry on top. Me, I love the work that I do. 
I love owning businesses. I love getting help. To, I love being able to pastor this church. I love, you know, the thing, but help raising my kids, homeschooling my kids. Hasn't always been that way. I've done some pretty awful jobs, right? When I graduated from college with, with a degree in golf course management, my first job, I was making $27,000 a year, working 80 hours a week, 12 days on, two days off in the Texas sunshine. I was making $6.50 an hour with a college degree, right? I did that for two years. And I said, hey, the only, you know, at that point, that's bad work. <laughs> you know, so I've had some really rough jobs. I've had some terrible jobs. And, uh, you know, eventually we, we, we want to find meaning and we want to find purpose in, in our work. And if you can find it, it's great. But I, I'm just going to tell you, um, you know, God says that toil is burdensome. Because of the fall, toil is burdensome. Work is burdensome. And so I, I, I think in, in my 46 years of living and my interactions with people for the last 20-something years as a follower of Jesus, I, I think one of the, the main things we do, the main mistakes we make as followers of Jesus, we're, we're trying to derive meaning from our work. And we should. And it's okay. It's okay if you can derive meaning. But more importantly is that you bring meaning to your work. When you're trying to, and now think about this, from, from the lady last week, Jesus starts talking to her about water. And he says, well, I've got some living water. And she's like, give me that water. So she thought she was trying to get this permanent satisfaction from this, these physical molecules of H2O. And Jesus is like, that, that, that's not going to sustain you forever. That's not going to sustain you for the long haul throughout all of eternity. It will not satisfy your thirst. You need a different type of water. And in the same way, when we think about our work and the work that God has given us to do, if you're trying to derive ultimate meaning and fulfillment, even if it's the most altruistic endeavor there is, you, will, you are going, it will eventually dry up. That well will eventually become dry because of the work, because of the people in some way, shape, or form. But if you can Take meaning into your work to where you go every single day. If you take meaning into your interactions with your coworkers, with your family members, with your neighbors, even taking meaning and into your social media news feeds as you're scrolling and can see them appropriately, you, you can find a sustenance if you realize that you were put on this earth to be a, a reaper and a sower, a, a harvester of human beings for the sake of the gospel. That will give you depth of meaning and purpose everywhere you go and in everything you do, no matter where it's at. No matter whether it's in your home, whether it's laying out at the pool, whether it is... Um, at work, it doesn't matter where you go, whether you're on vacation. If you see, if you understand that what God has called you to the work He has given each and every one of us is to do the will of God and to accomplish His work, 
you can find meaning and you can find joy and you can find fulfillment in every single thing that you do. And I know there's a lot of conversation going on, especially being a college-age church primarily. One of the big questions is, what is the will of God for my life? And I love Kevin DeYoung's book. Kevin DeYoung, if you don't know who that is, at one point in time was a pastor uh, just like Alathea, but his church was located next to Michigan State University. Having asked this question, been asked this question by thousands of college students in his ministry, he finally wrote a book, and he appropriately titled it, Just Do Something. That is God's will for your life. Just do something. You get the freedom. You get to choose. If God tells you what to do, go do it. But until he specifically says, you must do this and you have no other option, you go find work to do, and it's okay. You find you a, a, a spouse to marry. You just go on about life. Don't just sit there and try and paralyze yourself trying to figure out, what is the will of God for my life? Just do something. Work. Be a good friend. Be a good neighbor. Be a good spouse. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. These big, like archetypal commandments, these massive commandments, do those things. Don't worry so much about the details in the day-to-day. Engage with people where you're at in your organic spheres of influence. This is God's will for you. This is God's work for you. Food is never intended to permanently satisfy. Your work is never intendedly, intended to permanently satisfy in the way that we're trying to draw meaning from it. This is why people jump from job to job to job to job to job because they're not happy. They're unsatisfied. They're looking for the next thing. Notice what Paul says in Colossians 3. 23 through 24. Whatever you do, that's your freedom. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This tells you that whatever you do for the rest of your life when it comes to work, if you will do it for God, realizing that you are serving God, and by serving God, you are serving the people, there is a rich inheritance and reward for you. That is what is supposed to fulfill you. That is what is supposed to give you meaning, to know that no matter what work I choose, as long as I love God and love people in that work, if I will do that, there is an incredible inheritance. There is an incredible reward waiting for me because I was faithful and obedient to God because I was willing to do His will and I sought to accomplish His work. And so Jesus, having made this statement that His will or His food is to do the will of God and to accomplish His work, He then goes on to say, to these young men. He says, look, 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. This is the paradigm shift. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The question you've got to ask yourself in this moment is that are you being faithful to the work that God has called you? Are you being faithful to sowing and reaping wherever you are today? Are you sowing and reaping among your coworkers? Are you sowing and reaping among your friend group? Are you sowing and reaping everywhere that your foot places itself upon this earth? For this is the work that God has given us to do. This is the paradigm shift. This is the mind frame that we need to have as we go into each and every interaction that we have. This has the potential to to have a great impact on the world around us. We we want to see the world changed, right? I mean, I mean as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as conversations that we have regularly, It is about seeing the world change around us. But if we really want to see the world change, if we really want to experience it, it begins with our own interactions with the people around us and the encounters as just as we have conversations with one another. For that is where change is most likely to take place. I'll just give a plug for it. Last night I went to see the new Jesus Revolution movie out. Highly encourage it. Um, if you hear anything bad about it, those people are dumb, okay? It's an incredible movie. I saw this guy say, you know, on the internet, right? That's a terrible movie. You shouldn't. They're pe- it's outstanding. It was just outstanding. It was super good. But this incredible revolution happens in the 70s because people were willing to get into one another's world who would not normally interact with one another. But they actually just put the principles of the gospel in play with one another, and they saw lives changed around them. And so, if you will take as the intention of your work of making disciples, of being messengers of reconciliation, that should be your first and foremost priority in your work. That should be your first and foremost priority in your social media scrolling. That should be your first and foremost priority among your neighbors, is to make disciples and to be messengers of reconciliation. I mean, look at what Jesus says. And I mean, I'm going to use these two just like passages that most everyone who has been familiar with with, with the Bible for for their lives, they understand these two passages. Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, these are our marching orders. I mean, this is, this is how the Gospel of Matthew concludes with Jesus saying, now, now just remember, I, I heard a guy say this one time. He says, look, when the one guy stands up and it's actually true and he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He's like, whatever he says next, that's a really big deal. And whatever he says, you better like pay attention to it and it becomes emblazoned upon your life because this is the thing that he wants you to do more than anything else. And Jesus follows that statement of his credentials and says, go and make disciples. That's it. That is his will for you. That is his work for you. And if you and I will make that the priority of our lives, not not promising some Jesus revolution, you will find a sustaining and a fulfillment that radiates deep inside your soul. You will find a satisfaction there that is sustaining just like the living water that Jesus offered the Samaritan woman last week. You will find the lows of being depressed and like, why does my life matter? What is the purpose and point of all this? You will find that fades into the background because you get to go and you know that you are doing exactly what God wants you to do every single day of your life. Whether it's as a garbage man or as a doctor or as a student or on the beach or whether it's by the pool, whether it's owning your own business, whether it's being a nurse, whether it's being a lawyer, whether it is building homes, whether it's auto repair, it does not matter. If you know and understand this is your life's work until God calls you home, you will find a joy and fulfillment that the world cannot offer you in any means of vocation, in any amount of money or retirement or anything else that you can do. And to this, Paul says this to us, says it's the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21. Paul says it this way, echoing the words of Jesus. And he's talking to believers. And so believers, we have to ask ourselves and, and say, you know, if we are followers of Jesus, then first and foremost, the love of Christ should control us. This should be the dominant paradigm in our lives, having, having become new creations. When you go from the old creation to the new creation, this is the paradigm shift in your life by which everything changes. We want to view things through this lens. So look what he says. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, trying to derive meaning from work, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, having this new paradigm, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's a new paradigm. There's a new way through which to view the world. The old paradigm has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is your work. This is His will for you. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, this is our work. Our work is to make disciples. Our work is to be messengers, ministers of reconciliation to a lost and dying world. If we will put on this paradigm, if we will, this is the lens through which we will view how we step into every moment of our day, it will radically change the joy and fulfillment that we have each and every single day. It will give you purpose and meaning to your life no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter your occupation, no no matter whether you're married or single, no matter whether you're a grandparent or not a grandparent, it doesn't matter. If you will take this into your life, into your every interaction in life, you will find a sustaining and a fulfillment in every single thing that you do. And I think you, you, you've got to be honest with yourself and you've got to ask yourself, like, can you say that your life radiates joy? Can you say that your life feels full? Or do you feel this constant longing and nagging? Do you you feel this, this constant kind of angst and worry and fear and depression because you don't have what other people have? Because life is not as as you want it or desire it to be. I truly believe that according to the Scripture, the thing that upends all that and and washes that away is when we set it as as the, the precedent of our life to make disciples and be ministers of reconciliation. And so today, you you this is something you need to contemplate. This is something you you need to really wrestle with today throughout this week, uh, throughout this month, is saying, am I actually doing the will of God? Am I actually seeking to accomplish the real work, the most important work that He has given to me, that He has given to us as followers of Jesus?
And my prayer is that every time you feel that pain of dissatisfaction, that, that kind of pain of not being fulfilled, that, that, that longing for fulfillment, that this message would come back into your mind and to say, the thing that you're looking for, you already know the answer to. The thing that you're looking for to, to bring about this as the byproduct is making disciples and being a minister of reconciliation. For we are called to sow and to reap. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will bless us with stories like that of the Samaritan woman. A woman whose life was literally ruined. to so bad that people in her town wouldn't even interact with her. That she would go out to be away from everyone else. But yet her life was so radically touched by the living water that Jesus offered that when she went and told everybody about how amazing Jesus was, the whole town came to see. And not only did the whole town come to see, but the whole town came to eventually proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And if you've never experienced someone passing from death to life in front of your eyes, if you've never experienced that, it'll do something for you that no work in this world can ever do. It will give you a joy and a sustaining to watch the power of God transform a stone-called heart into a living flesh heart. It'll do something for you that no other experience in this world can do. But we have to set our intentions upon making disciples and being ministers of reconciliation. So my prayer for us is that having acknowledged Jesus as the Savior of the world, we would make it our first and foremost priority to make disciples, to be ministers of reconciliation. That we would have this paradigm shift in our lives knowing that if we do that, the byproduct is the joy and the fulfillment that our hearts so desperately long for, we'll find that if we make disciples and seek to be ministers of reconciliation. Those who sow the seed, but also reap the fruit of the harvest. So I just want you to take a few moments, and I just want you to remember back to when you first became a follower of Jesus. When the veil was removed and the scales dropped from your eyes and the first time that you were able to see Jesus in all of His awe and wonder that there would, there would be this God who would take upon flesh and would offer Himself as a sacrifice for your sin. That He who knew no sin was willing to become sin for you so that you who were at enmity with God, you who were, who's got, you for whom God's wrath was against, He came and offers Himself as a sacrifice so that you could be redeemed and reconciled to Him. 
Take a moment to just remember and to express thanks to God for your salvation. visualize the, the, the people in your life that you want to have that same experience. Who is that one that you have been praying for? Who is that one you've been intentionally interacting with? Pray right now they would experience transforming power of Jesus. But now, in the way that Jesus had the disciples he said, look to the harvest. I want you to look beyond that one. I want you to, to visualize and see those that you regularly interact with who aren't followers of Jesus. And I want you to pray that God would make you bold enough. God would make you strong enough and courageous enough to step into that uncomfortable place of being intentional about making a disciple and being a minister of reconciliation. Father, as we hold these elements in our hand, may it not be lost on us what they represent. A God who is willing to take on flesh so that we could be reconciled to Him. Father, may the love of Christ control us. May we be willing to do your will and to accomplish your work. May we realize in this moment that the food that truly satisfies is the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood that was shed.